Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from the one of whom we read and study the promises, the reality of the presence of God in each of our lives. His grace, his mercy, and his peace as described and taught in his word. As I mentioned to you at the start of the service, whether it's an individual study you are doing, whether you're part of a small group, or whether you are coming here to these six weeks of the case for Christ, the central matter now becomes the authenticity of the Bible. Whether you are James Kennedy writing the book, Why I Believe, or whether you are Josh McDowell writing the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or whether you are Lee Strobel writing a book, The Case for Christ, there is no way, <laughs> there is no way that you can ever get past the central platform of the Christian's life. Political parties have platforms, the Democrats and Republicans, they have platforms, teachings, ideas upon which they stand. What is a platform? A platform is a raised level surface upon which you stand in order to gaze around you and behold that which surrounds you. Uh, how incredible that this book is the Christmas platform. A raised level surface upon which we stand and we gaze upon the events of our life and this world's life. And from this platform, we have a safety, a comfort, a peace, a realization, an understanding that others do not have. David was writing about such things 2,900 years ago. Psalm 19, verse 8, he said, The precepts of the Lord are right. They give joy to the hearts. Why should they not give joy? Why should they not give joy? It's your heavenly Father, the one described as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Why should your, not, your heart not be filled with joy when he sits down and emails you and texts you and and phone calls you and, and visits you and letters you? Why would you not be filled with joy when you receive a communication from God himself? I love Martin Luther. I never forget his comment. Uh, he said, when I opened the Bible before I read a single word, just putting my hands on the pages, there was an electricity, there was an energy that went through my body because I was opening up and I had my fingers on the very Word of God. Why should it not bring you joy when you read what God has to share with you? And then I like the second part of what David writes in that psalm. He says, The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. They give light to the eyes. They give understanding to the mind. And they give light to the eyes. What do they help you understand? They help you understand why pain and suffering are in the world. Jesus said, in this world there will always be storms, but take heart, I've overcome the world. They help you understand why certain circumstances have come into your life. Circumstances that Satan meant to destroy you and to destroy your faith. And by the time that God had got through working on it, that which Satan meant for your great harm became the greatest spiritual experience you ever had in your life. It gives light to your eyes. That beautiful verse, Romans 8, 28, all things that happen to us on this earth work together for good. Why? Because they're in the hands of God. That's the light that he gives us. 
The light that enables April Dominic, when I go see her the other morning after her mother has died, and she's there in the garage, and, and she's working on pictures and stuff like that for the wake, and, and I go there, and out of her mouth comes a comment I mention to you all the time. Okay, out of her mouth comes a comment, how does one get through this without God? Okay, so the platform in April Dominic's life as she is grieving the passing of her mother, Darlene Zarava, this is the platform. And she has enough light from God's Word, enough powerful light, that, you know, within 12 hours after her mother's passing, she is saying, how does anyone get through this without God? What is she talking about? She's talking about God's Word, because that's where God reveals Himself. She's talking about God's promises, 7,000 of them. A mom and dad can make a promise to a child. A grandma or grandpa can make a child uh, a promise to a child. We're going to Disney or something like that. But you know, with regards to us human beings, things change all the time, right? One loses their job, one slips and falls and, and breaks their leg or something, and all of a sudden the promises we made, they can't come true. The promises we make are human promises. My goodness gracious, when you open up this book... You don't have human promises. You have 7,200 promises that have come from the wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. When any human being, and I heard it three times this past week, when any human being says, how do they get through this without God? They are meaning His Word and His promises. It's very significant what Jesus said the day before he dies, when he tells his disciples he's going to prepare a place for us, and that he's going to come back and take us to be with him, he then says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am life, I am the way. The Bible is God's way for us. I am the way, I am the truth. This is true. I am life, this is life. It gives joy to the heart because you know God can't lie. It gives joy to the heart because they were using this book a thousand years ago, 1,500 years ago, and we're still using it now. My great-great-grandpa, when he was preaching at funerals, he was using this book. When he was uh, officiating at weddings, he was using this book. When he was visiting sick people back in 1836, he was using this book. And his great-great-grandson is still using this book. When this church began October of 1859, 160 years now, the first sermon ever preached in this pulpit was from this book, and the second and third and fourth and the thousands and the hundred thousands. It's always from this book. And the first principal that ever sat here at a school and the first teacher that ever taught in a classroom, this book. Lee Strobel says the existence of the Bible is inviolable proof of the existence of God himself. And he is right on. Old books go out of date. The questions they dealt with when they were written are no longer being asked. The institutions they advocated have long since ceased to be. The injustices they fought against have long since ceased. What do, do, what do today's people care about the pathos of a man named Simonides 
or the morals of a great author named Tully. Uh, what do they care about the sarcasm of Menander or the wit of Aristophanes? You hear the name Plato and Socrates, famous names in history. Do you read their works all the time? Have you ever read them in the entirety of your life? The old, old books have very little effect upon modern times, and then you have this book. All other books are written by man. They are human. They have a time to be born. They have a middle life of usefulness. And then the white pages become yellow. They totter and they die. Not so with one old book, the Bible. It began in the world's infancy when God was nursing the earth. The ancient book had its start. It grew under theocracy. It grew under monarchy. It withstood storms of fire, the dark ages, the age of enlightenment, communism, evolution. It grew under the prophet's mantle and under the fisherman's coat of the apostles. It grew in Rome where it should not have existed, so violent and anti-Christian was that city. It grew in Ephesus and Patmos and Jerusalem. When Jesus said to the disciples, you stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth, what did they take with them to witness to? The Bible. To the utter ends of the earth. The book crossed the English Channel. It landed in the hands of King James I. And we know what happened to the Bible then. King James Version still in use by so many a Christian. The book came across on the Mayflower, and though many of those who were on that boat perished, the book did not perish. And when it landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620, the anniversary right around the corner, when it landed on Plymouth Rock, it grabbed hold of this nation because from this book there come the fires and the promises and the energy and the peace and the strength from God himself. You look at the institutions built at that time, Harvard University, for instance. Every institution, every hospital, every orphanage, every school, every university, they had their basis, their beginning, their foundation, their platform on the Word of God. They rang forth their bells and they stretched forth their hands to college students, to patients, to orphans. And every Sunday, there are multitudes of Christians. Every Sunday, there are multitudes of Christians still gathering as they did in 1620. Still gathering to hear God's word. You can be at Willow Creek this morning, you hear God's word. You can be at Saddleback, you hear God's word. You can be at North Point down there in, in Georgia with 48,000 people worshiping. Their platform, their central foundation is this word. You can go to that small church worshiping three people in Henrietta, Georgia, Second Baptist Church. And that little group with two or three people in attendance, they're studying this word. There are people who come at Christmas and Easter. Do we bring forth this word just at Christmas and Easter? Fifty-two times a year, seventy times a year, counting Advent and Lent. And innumerable the times that Pastor Shower and I are bringing this book 
to a nursing home, to a hospital, to a home where joy has just entered, to a home where sorrow has just entered. It's always the same book. Lee Strobel had it absolutely correct. Martin Luther had it absolutely correct. The existence of the Bible is inviolable proof of the existence of God himself. Prophet Jeremiah wrote it. Excuse me, Prophet Isaiah wrote it. Chapter 40, verse 8. He said, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God shall abide forever. And Isaiah wrote that in 700 B.C. 2,700 years later, he would not be surprised to know that from this pulpit and from the pulpits all over the country and all over the world, this word is still being... He would not be surprised at all because that's what he said. Heaven and earth shall pass away. Jesus commenting on Isaiah's comment in Isaiah 48. Jesus, Luke 21, 33... Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Jesus would not be surprised that 2,000 years later, we are still preaching and teaching his word. I sat and thought yesterday, I was working on the sermon, I sat and thought, 200 years from now, if this church still exists, would they still be teaching and preaching this? Why would I have one single doubt that if this church celebrated its 360th anniversary, that this word would still be preached and taught? Why would I have any doubts? Statues of the Lord are right. I want to show you very briefly how they are right in their authenticity how they are right in their doctrine and how they are right in the effect they have upon human lives. Does anyone here today doubt the authenticity of the Scriptures? There was a great preacher, his name was T. DeWitt Talmadge. He lived about 100 years ago. He said, there is not so much evidence that Sir Walter Scott wrote The Lady of the Lake. There is not so much evidence that William Shakespeare wrote Hamlet. And there is not so much evidence that John Milton wrote Paradise Lost. Then there is evidence that the Lord God Almighty wrote this book by the hands of the prophets, the evangelists, and the apostles. If a book is written today and it conflicts with a great many things or if it is written by impostors, or if it is written and five years later that what it speaks on is no longer of interest to humanity, how long does the book last? Short weeks? Average lifespan of a bestseller is three and a half years? This book, thousands and thousands of years, I told you two weeks ago that the book that you're studying, The Case for Christ, is one of the best-selling books in Christendom in quite some time. Five million copies sold in the 21 years it has, it has existed. And then you have the Bible in the year 2018, 120 million Bibles printed. If you added up all the, the next best-sellers... The Bible doesn't even make the bestseller list anymore because it just doesn't. It is so beyond what any other book garners in the form of publications. It's never even mentioned. 
But if you added up the next 50 best-selling books, uh, they still wouldn't total 120 million. God's hands all over this book. If the book is uh, fairy tales, if it's an imposition, if it plagiarizes other writings, if it's not written by the one who said had written it, it is discovered in no time at all, and it is put to death. If Job, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, Simon, Peter, if they had never existed, if they were make-believe characters, if they were imposters, wouldn't the generations have discovered that and crucified them? If this book has come down through the fires of centuries and has withstood communism and the New Age and evolution and everything else under the sun, why do you think it has stayed protected? Because it is God's Word. And there is never a time, and there is never a circumstance in your life or mine, in which God's Word and God's promise shall not prevail. The authenticity of the Bible. The Bible intimates that there was a city named Petra, built of solid rock. The skeptics scoffed. They said, where is such a city? Never been discovered. Buchart went on an expedition. He found that city of Petra. The mountains stand like granite sentinels guarding the tomb where the city of Petra lies buried. There is a street, a main street in Petra that is six miles long. There are temples fashioned out of colored stones that still exist. When the Bible intimates there is a city named Petra, God writes the truth in the Bible. God says Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and brimstone. The skeptics say ridiculous. There is nothing in the elements that can cause such a shower of death. An explorer named Lynch, he goes to the very place where the two cities once stood. They are now buried under the waters of the Dead Sea. That does not stop him. He sinks a fathoming line down, and from the bottom of the Dead Sea, he brings up buckets full of sulfur, remnants of the very storm that the Bible says destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Who is right? God writes the truth in his word. The Bible speaks of a city called Nineveh. It says that city was so large it took three days to go around that city. The Bible says that city would be destroyed by fire and water. The skeptics laugh and they say it is not possible for a city in the ancient world to be so large. It would take three days to walk around it. And it could not have been destroyed by fire and water because they are antagonistic elements. The scientists go on a mission. They find the ruins of the city walls of Nineveh. It takes them three days to walk around the ruins of the city walls of Nineveh. And they say that part of the city lies underneath the Tigris River. And the other part of the city they find remains of heaps of charcoal excavated from gypsum. It was a city destroyed by water and by fire. God speaks the truth in his word. Before Lee Strobel ever wrote his book, Joshua McDowell was the book that we grew up on. 
the evidence that demands a verdict. Joshua McDowell says in his book that there are 60 major prophecies in the Old Testament which point to Christ. And there are 270 ramifications that point to Christ. You have a scientist named Hartzler. He wrote a book called Science Speaks. And he says in his book that to fulfill but eight prophecies pertaining to Christ's death, to fulfill but eight prophecies, there'd be a one in a trillion chance that one person could fulfill eight of those prophecies that were written 700 years earlier. And Hartzler quoted in McDowell's book says, the fulfillment of 60 prophecies and 270 ramifications. There is only one possibility that that could ever happen. The Bible is God's Word. How do we know that Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ's coming? How do we know that Bible even exists, that book of the Bible? And that's where the archaeologists come, and that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come. God enables us, even in this century, to make discoveries that bring to the truth and the reality the doctrines of the Bible, the authenticity of the Bible. Very briefly, it is also right in its doctrines. What is its doctrine? Man is a sinner. Christ is a Savior. That's the doctrine. Ken Ham, at the Ark Encounter of a couple of weeks ago, listening to his lecture, he said, there are only two religions on planet Earth. Don't be telling me there are hundreds or thousands of religions on planet Earth. There are only two. He said, those that are centered on man and those that are centered on God, there are only two. When uh, Jeremiah says... Let not the wise man boast in how smart he is. Let not the strong man boast in how healthy he is. If we have health, we have everything. Let not the rich man boast in how wealthy he is. Because each one of those things are centered on man. One's health, one's relationships, one's wealth are all centered on man. In the Bible, there is one thing that Jesus despised more than anything else. It was the arrogance and pomposity that came from the scribes and the Pharisees. How many times does the Bible tell us, including in the Old Testament, three things does God require, Micah 6, 8? That you act justly, that you love mercy, and what's the last one? That you walk humbly with your God. That you walk humbly with your God. Man is a sinner. Christ is our Savior. Then you come to the New Testament, you have Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What's he talking about? He's talking about humility. Man must come down. Man must come down. And man must say, in God's eyes, I am just an ant. I am a sinful human being. Man is a sinner. Christ is a Savior. Had a nice conversation, a, a rather heated argument, a nice conversation with a Catholic priest some three weeks ago. He found it very difficult to believe 
that salvation was not 50% God's work and 50% ours. He had a difficult time believing that. He had a difficult time believing that salvation was not 80% God's work and 20% ours. He had an almost impossible time believing that salvation was not 90% God's work and 10% ours. And he certainly would not hear of the fact that salvation was not 99% God's work and 1% ours. He could not fathom that salvation was 100% God's work. I said, I know in your Bible you have Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I know you do. You have to look at it. By grace are you saved through faith. That faith is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not of works, my dear man. Not of works, lest any man should boast. I interviewed many a Catholic priest when I was at the seminary, part of a paper I was working on. And I would say that 99% of those Catholic priests, when I asked them, how are you saved? They said, through faith in Christ. But I bumped into a ringer. Okay, I bumped into a ringer three weeks ago. And quite a discussion. Man is a sinner. Christ is our Savior. And that is why so many people on their deathbed, when they are asked, is there anything that might separate you from God? They mention some sin. They mention some sin. Connie has so many in her grief support group throughout all these years that are Catholic. And she said, Paul, it's so difficult to get them to understand that their loved one that they are separated from, their salvation is not dependent on how many times they went to Mass or how many times they used their rosary. She said, Paul, it's so difficult to get across to them that we are saved by grace through faith. The primary teaching of the Bible for the peace that it brings us and the peace that we can share with other people. How many times have I done funerals? Half of the 900 funerals I've done are probably people I don't know, relatives and friends of you guys, okay? And when I ask the first question of the person who's still surviving, and I say, was your husband a Christian? Was your son a Christian? Was your wife a Christian? Was your grandma a Christian? When I ask that question, they will invariably say, you know, they haven't been in church in 20 years, or, you know, the words that came out of their mouth, they certainly didn't sound Christian. And I always have to point them to 1 John 3.20. Even if your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart, and he knows all things. He knows whether you believe in him or not. Man is a sinner. Christ is the Savior. And finally, 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 the Bible is right in its authenticity, it is right in its doctrine, it is right in its effect on a human being's life. It is right in its effect on a human being's life. When people say to Connie and I, I don't know how you survived the passing of your son. When some are more pointed and say, I don't see how you stayed in the ministry. Someone there at LA Fitness not too long ago. How did you stay in the ministry when your son died? The Bible is right in the effects it has on a human being's life. 
I cannot tell you the number of times that I enter a situation where my knees are shaking and I'm begging God to be with the family I'm about to see, to be with me as I'm speaking to them. I go to that door, I go to that hospital room, and my knees are shaking. I go to that police officer, to that jail, and my knees are shaking. I go to the hospital where the baby has just breathed its last, and I'm shaking when I go there. And invariably, when I enter that circumstance, there is a peace that I can't describe. It's not the numbness of grief. It's a peace that I cannot describe. And that peace comes from the promises in this book. When Pastor Shower and I do a funeral, we do not share with the congregation Aesop's fables. When we're visiting someone who's dying, we do not share Aesop's fables. When someone has joy going on in their life, we don't share some myth or fairy tale with them. Martin Luther, correct. Lee Strobel, correct. The existence of the Bible is proof of the existence of God himself. For this is his word. Friday was interesting. Friday was visiting someone who had just lost their mother. And this is the word and the promise they clung to. And also on Saturday was visiting a dear lady at Christ Hospital whose baby was going to come prematurely. And she didn't know, nor did the doctors, whether this baby would survive. The baby survived. And she said to me, you have to have prayers. Her husband was here last night to make sure we had prayers. No. She said, you have to have prayers of thanksgiving because the only way that this miracle could ever have occurred was the fact that God and my Savior was with me. The two extremes, great joy, great sorrow. And there is one book from which the promises were drawn that gave them peace and strength and hope and comfort. This book, dear people, in our Savior's name, amen. Would you rise as we pray? Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we, know we need all sorts of light, Lord, because Satan's always there. And he's always saying, you ought to be very afraid. He's saying, you ought to be very worried. He, he's saying, you ought to be filled with shame and guilt to the moment you die. He says to us, you ought to be filled with anger. You ought to look at re revenging yourself. And God's Spirit works through God's Word, and he counteracts everything that Satan tries to put into our hearts. 365 times we are told, in God's Word, do not be afraid. We are told that our sins are forgiven and removed as far as east is from the west. We are told that vengeance is God. We are to return a harsh word with a gentle answer. Heavenly Father, may your children on this earth more highly esteem this book than they do. And rather than it gathering dust somewhere on a cabinet or a bookshelf, may it be next to our bedside 
May we look at it on a daily basis. May we say, Lord, bring me some verse today that will come alive in my life. And so it shall be in our Savior's name. Amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.